0: Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is Dr. Eugenia Cheng. Long-time listeners to this podcast may remember that I spoke to Eugenia nearly four years ago about her career as an author, mathematician, and musician. She actually lives in my neighborhood, and since that conversation, I've seen her from time to time, but she emailed me a few weeks ago asking if perhaps she could return as a guest to talk about a different topic altogether. She has been trying to conceive a child and has had a painful journey in attempting to do so, getting to the point where she has concluded that she will not have children. It has been a journey full of loss and lament, but she also feels it is a journey that doesn't get talked about enough, and she has felt compelled to tell her story. This conversation then includes frank conversation of miscarriages and infertility, and I wanted to give listeners a heads up for those who may find this topic difficult but I also hope it can be helpful to create awareness for those who have struggled and who continue to struggle to start a family. Well, Eugenia Cheng, it's great to be with you again. Uh, the last time we had a conversation, I was mentioning to you, it was almost four years ago, which is hard to believe, but as you noted too, COVID kind of does weird things with time yes. these days. Mm. The last time uh, we talked, we um, talked about your uh, book, um, How to Make Pie, and since then, I know you've read uh, written at least one more, if not two more, but... So, uh, four, four. Oh, four since then, oh my goodness, yeah. wow, all right. In addition to, I mentioned also that uh, you have a regular column in the Wall Street Journal, and you writing in other places too, but you had reached out to me via email a few weeks ago to uh, be open and talk about uh, something else that's been happening or has happened in your own life and something that you are feeling uh, led to share, um, both for yourself but also perhaps to help others who might be going through something similar. So I'll let you begin by sharing um, what has been happening or not happening in your own life and then we'll do some reflection on that.
1: Yes, thank you. I really remembered your podcast from all those years ago as a, being a very thoughtful and uplifting conversation in in many ways. Even though I couldn't remember specifically what we talked about, <laughs> it stayed with me <laughs> as a memory like that. And I remembered the words failing boldly. Mm. And that's what really made me think of you and the the opportunity to talk to you. Because what I've done recently is I have failed mm. very, very dramatically, I think. And, and I'm trying to do it boldly. And I think I did do it boldly. And what I failed at was having children.
2: Mm.
1: And when I say I failed, I'm not passing moral judgment And I think that's really important and I want to make sure everyone listening, in case you don't have children, I want to make sure everyone knows I'm not saying it's some kind of moral failure. I'm just being very factual. I have failed to have children. And the thing is that it does feel like a catastrophic, calamitous failure to me. And it is set against as you've alluded to I think quite a lot of success in the rest of my life if I may say that about myself I since I wrote my first book my career and my work have taken off in ways that I really never dreamt of and I have achieved and done things I really never dreamt of it's not even about fulfilling my wildest dreams these are things I did not dream of I didn't dream of writing books. I didn't dream of writing a column in a national, international newspaper. I didn't dream of traveling the world, public speaking. These things all happened. And meanwhile, during all of that, I have been hiding an enormous amount of grief and pain. And now that that journey is really over, and I'm coming to terms with the fact that I will not be a mother and that is something that I have failed to be able to do. I would like to talk about it because I think that it isn't talked about enough and it turns out that we're a quite large minority, it's about one in five women apparently uh, enter their midlife not having children, and that 90% of those, it was not by choice. Mm. And so I think we hear more about women who chose not to have children. And that's a valid path, that really is a valid path. But then there's all the rest of us who did not choose this path. It landed on us involuntarily, and many of us are very afraid to talk about it. Mm. And I think that's why the stories aren't heard. And of course, because it's not talked about, the silence continues, and, and so we continue to feel afraid to talk about it because nobody else is talking about it. And so I want to talk about it to try and help others who might be going through this because it does feel like a terrible failure and an enormous trauma and grief and burden, and to me, those burdens are heavier when they're invisible. And it's not exactly that they become lighter by sharing them, except that that's a nice image. So maybe I'll just stay with that okay. for a while. That if if we if we share burdens then then we carry them together and maybe that's what what I would like to do because I need to find some way to to do something positive. Mm-hmm. Not to cure this, because I don't think there's any curing it, but if I can find some way to help other people with it, then then there will at least have been some some I, I don't want to say purpose to it, but some Something good will come Mm -hmm. despite it.
0: Can I ask, you mentioned that the success you've had in your field wasn't necessarily, and the kinds of success that you've had isn't necessarily something that you were looking for, but is motherhood, is that something that you have felt intrinsically for uh, a lot of your life, some of your life, all of your life?
1: All of my life, Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to be a mother but it's it's somehow deeper than that mm. it, it was always like you said part of me it wasn't that i sat down and want, went i want to be a mother i just th- thought that it was so much part of me that it w- was in my destiny mm. and whereas becoming a mathematician also, it didn't really feel like a choice. Sometimes I'm asked about that, and uh, there was—it was really just something. It was obvious to me. But yes, I chose to pursue more education and do the things that were uh, necessary or the usual things to become a mathematician. And the thing is, what I really, what I really wanted to do was be able to provide for my family. And I was brought up to believe that I shouldn't have to rely on a man um, for financial stability and that I should make sure I had my own. And so that involved pragmatically getting a career. And so I, at some point, did make a choice not to go into music. There was some kind of choice between mathematics and music and I'm often asked about that as well and the thing is that I was I was brought up not to be a risk taker I was brought up to be pragmatic and I thought well I could make a living as a musician and do math on the side or I could make a living doing math and do music on the side and the latter seemed much more sensible. There was a an interesting previous transformation in my life that was a bit like failing boldly and I I can't remember if we talked about this before but it was where I changed the direction of my career, and I stopped trying to be a normal academic, which was the obvious career path as a mathematician. To I got my PhD, I did my postdocs around the world, and then I worked really hard and got tenure. And then the obvious thing to do is you become a professor and you become part of a university and you keep, con- and then you retire and 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 blah blah blah. And at some point, I realized that that wasn't for me actually, although I had wanted to do it for a really long time. And I, in a way, I failed at that, boldly. Because I, after getting tenure, I decided I uh, to quit. And I moved back to Chicago, which I love, and started doing more public work. And that's when I started writing books and really, all I was trying to do was get out of a job that I, w- was making me unhappy. I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write loads of books and have an international public speaking career. I just thought, what can I do that would enable me to not have to have this job anymore? Um, and what I really wanted to do was, was reach out to more people in the world and help them with whatever I could. And what seemed like I could help them with at the time was approaching mathematics. And so then I thought, well, how can I help the most people with that? And it turned out that there was a demand for a book. So I wrote the first book and then it turned out that there was a demand for another book. Mm. So I wrote another book and it just kept going like that. And I think that I've kept just going with that career without having children. And as a result, over the course of all the time that I have spent not having children, it looks like a career, even though it wasn't what I aimed for. Mm -hmm.
0: As your career was going, well, I guess I'm curious if you don't mind kind of walking us through a little bit of Your decision to at least to start or try to have children and how long has that journey been
1: yes well I I never wanted to have children just abstractly and again I'm not passing judgment on anyone else's decisions there are many different routes to becoming Mm -hmm. a parent and I think it's important that everyone does the one that is right for them we're all different and uh, I didn't want to do it by myself I wanted to procreate with a, within a loving stable partnership and so the first problem was finding that <laughs> and that can
0: be that can be a challenge in and of itself
1: yes right and this is this has been called social infertility where there are many people who are unable to have children because they can't find mm. a, a suitable partner And there has been much that has been studied about this in relation to feminism and the increase of women's participation in education and also in work. And it is true that I am very educated. I have more degrees than is entirely necessary, (laughs) perhaps except if you want to be an academic, in which case I have exactly as many degrees as is necessary. But there are many statistics about how women tend to apparently want to be with men at least as educated as them, or earning at least as much as them. And I object to those statistics because I think that they have been overinterpreted. You can look at the levels of education of men and women in heterosexual partnerships, but that doesn't tell you who chose what. And it's the same with earnings, that there may be some popular belief that women want to be with a man who earns more than them, but but the statistics don't tell us that. The statistics just tell us who earns what. It doesn't tell us who desired what. And my experience was that The more educated I became, the more terrified men were Mm. of me. And the more, then it became a spiral, a vicious spiral, not even a circle, because a circle just comes back to itself. This one spiraled because the longer I spent not being able to find a suitable partner, the more successful I became because my career just kept going. And the more terrifying I duly became, I think, or at least that's how it seemed. And it was, I think it was a problem that I was a mathematician, that I am a mathematician. Because being successful in what is perceived as a male, well, it is a male-dominated field, but it can seem like a threat, apparently, Hmm. to men who would either run away or take it as an opportunity to just try and belittle me as much as possible in order to salvage their self-esteem. So I had a lot of that. I did some experiments where I didn't say I was a mathematician when I met people. And, I mean, it's obviously not a scientific experiment. It was just a e- social experiment. Sometimes I just didn't say what I was, and sometimes I picked a more friendly-sounding um homely female sort of career according to stereotypes and it was very funny how men were much more keen on having long conversations with me so it was it was in those years that i just kept advancing in my career without really meaning to and scaring men in various ways in fact In my first book tour for How to Bake Pie, I went on Irish breakfast TV, and just before I went on, one of the interviewers, who was an older man, said to me, are you single? And it was such an abrupt, direct, and inappropriate question. I was very thrown, and I was also quite new to this sort of thing, and so I didn't know what to do except answer honestly. And so I just replied, yes. And he said, well, I'm not surprised. No man would want to be with you. You're too good at too many things. Oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> this is the interviewer who said
2: that? That was
1: the interviewer, oh. yes. and then we And then we went on air, live, <laughs> oh on TV, gosh. about five seconds later. And so you might say I'm imagining that people were put off by me. But I think I have enough incidents that I've logged in my head of people saying things like that there was the the guy who very honestly said to me I I do want to be with someone intelligent just not quite as intelligent as me it was very straightforward very straightforward about it (laughs) so that was that was very hard and so It really bothers me when I see these articles saying that women want to be with someone who's more educated or women want to be with someone who earns more money. Because for me, it wasn't that at all. It was somehow that the men wanted to be with someone less educated, at least less educated than me.
0: But you found somebody?
1: Yes. It took me a very long time. Yeah, And that was part of the problem that... By the time I did, I was really already too old. Mm. And this is the thing that, that I would say that social infertility can cause biological mm. infertility mm. because age really does matter. I mean, it does matter for men as well, but it's not so precipitous. For women, it's precipitous and much earlier. And there's nothing that you can really do about it you can there there is medical treatment but it doesn't fix it it it's just all percentages and so the treatment improves your chances but if you're so old that your chances are absolutely tiny then all it does is improve your chances from absolutely tiny to small and that might be enough and if you want it enough which we did then it's worth trying and for some people that that small increase of chances is enough and it, and it works out and unfortunately that gives people the idea that there are miracles mm. and the thing about miracles first of all it's just science I wouldn't really say it's a miracle and the other thing is that it's really just the fact that if something has a very small chance of happening, by definition, mathematically, that means that over a large sample, it does happen occasionally. That's what the, that's how small probabilities are defined. And so if something has a, say, 5% chance of success, that does mean that in 100 times, you'd expect it to happen five times, mm-hmm. which means it does happen, and so it's not surprising, but it does mean that it doesn't happen very often. and also as an individual you don't do it a hundred times and so the small probabilities in the end don't really they don't offer much comfort because Mm -hmm. you can't do it a hundred times so that's the thing that, that at a certain point you're too old and that's what happened to me and it does feel like failure because it feels like my body failed. Mm. It didn't do the thing that I feel like it was supposed to. And again, I know that for many people, they don't feel it so strongly and that they feel that there are many other things that, that, that we are, as it were, destined to do. But I, thi- I think about it as what sets us apart as humans, animals well there are various things and I've been quite successful at those things, the things that involve community and helping others and developing thought processes and things like that that I think are set us apart from animals but I feel like I failed as an animal almost at the thing that all animals just do, which is reproduce in order to maintain the existence of the species on the planet. And that's a very difficult thing to get my head around.
0: You mentioned earlier that the one in five, the majority of the tw- I guess, the 20% who don't have children but who wanted them in the first place, that they're there's a lot of silence around that because mostly in society we only hear about those who do have children. Mm. Do you have thoughts on why the silence is there? Why people are hesitant to talk about it? Is it because of that? Maybe it's the sense of shame or failure they do feel Mm. or is it, I guess, you know, what are your own thoughts as to why it's not talked about more?
1: Well, I definitely need to credit psychologist Jodie Day who is I think the pioneering psychologist writing about this issue after she went through it herself and she retrained as a psychologist specifically to help women going through this and so she's written a lot about this and I think that from what I can see there is a lot of shame about it because we feel like we have failed in so many ways. But also, it's not just something that we invent in our heads. It's something that society places on us. And I know that involuntary childlessness can be very difficult for men as well, but I think it is different because society still tries to control women in different ways from how it tries to control men and it has for so long defined women in terms of reproduction and tried to control them in terms of reproduction and the liberation of women has is so much wrapped up in reproductive rights even though some people deny that it's that is an an issue to do with women's liberation but i think that that's i think that's the case and in the process of women's liberation in the last fifty or sixty years. There have been there's been so much about what it means to be really a woman. And there are accusations about women who don't have children not being real women or something. And there's accusations about that in politics against women who don't have children, that, that there's something wrong with them. And I think that there is fear of women who don't have children. And as usual in society, the response to that fear is to vilify them in order to deal with that fear. And deep down, I wonder if it's because there's a fear that women who don't have children will achieve too much because they're not, but because, I mean, having children is a burden, and it's especially a burden on women because women are still taking on a disproportionate amount of the unpaid domestic labor these days, which is not to say that no men do anything. It's just that overall that is still true. And perhaps there's a fear that women who don't have children will achieve too much and show men up. I don't know. I'm wildly speculating now. But as a result, they have to be vilified in order to somehow address that possibility. And so... Yes, maybe they achieve a lot, but there's something wrong with them, or that that they're to be objects of pity because they're miserable, heartless, aggressive, ambitious, unsympathetic women, and so maybe that's why women don't want to speak up about it. But I think another reason that I have seen, and I I am a a member of Jodie Day's amazing online community called Gateway Women which is for women who are permanently involuntarily childless yeah. where they can share their stories one thing that i've seen is that another reason we're silent is that it's so painful that it's very difficult to speak about it without completely breaking down mm. emotionally and i am certainly still afraid of breaking down emotionally in a professional situation because of the taboos well because of the criticism that women get for being too emotional Mm. and so because because it is a criticism i have felt the need to try not to show too much emotion professionally in case people get fed up and go oh you're just being an emotional irrational woman But now I realize that that's just another way to silence us. Mm. And I don't want to be silenced (laughs) anymore. And I I want to help others not feel like they have to be silent. And I've decided that the worst that will happen is that I get very emotional. And so I'm very grateful that you agreed to have this conversation because I feel safe and I feel that I won't be judged if I get very emotional, and as a result, I'm not afraid of speaking mm. and and it's one of those things it's it's like if you're walking if you're walking on a tightrope that's an inch off the ground, then y- you're not afraid, so mm. you'll probably wobble less. yeah but if you're if there is danger, then you'll probably wobble more. And it's the same with this, that if I feel I can't be emotional, I'll probably feel much worse. Whereas if I feel safe, then it feels okay to talk about it. And I think that that feels important to break the silence. And one of the wonderful things Jodi Day says in her book, which is called Living the Life Unexpected, she says, in order to break a taboo, you just need two people, Mm. one person to speak and one person to listen. Mm. And that's what we're doing now.
0: Yeah. You've mentioned in, I can't remember, in, in one of the emails, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there are those who have either said to you or who may project onto this a sense that, well, you can't, this must not hurt too much because you have success in s- other areas of your life. Mm. And they fail to be empathetic of that real pain that you are feeling like yes these things are true that I'm successful in these other areas but that doesn't mean that there isn't still real pain that you're experiencing so can you talk a little bit about that uh, as well of, mm. the, of the perhaps insensitivity that others might have is assuming that you it doesn't hurt as much because you're successful in other areas
1: yes and that's true it's true and there are many things that people say and I think that people don't know what to say a lot mm. of the time and partly that's because they have no experience of talking to people about this because no one ever talks about it. Yeah. So I don't blame anyone particularly uh, which is why another reason I want to talk about it to try and raise the awareness of what is going on and it's it's always dangerous to make comparisons and it, this isn't a competition about whose pain is worse. Right. It's just about validating this pain. And sometimes I think, if if I had had a child who was born and then died, would people say these things? As it happened, I have several children who died before they were born. That's the losses that I've had. But if I'd had a child who was born and then died, would people say to me, oh, well, it's all right. You have all this career success. That would be an absurd thing to say, and I dearly hope that no one would say that. And it's not the same as having a child who was born and then died. I know it's not the same. But it's not the same in all sorts of ways. And some people who are childless have not experienced those losses and some people have experienced those losses and are not childless because many people have miscarriages Mm -hmm. and many people have miscarriages and go on to have children many people have miscarriages after having children or in between having children and it is different to have those losses as part of a journey towards building a family rather than as the end of a journey but that doesn't mean that that pain isn't there either and so having i'm sure that having a child doesn't cancel out the pain Mm -hmm. of that loss but at least it means you don't have the loss of the the pain of childlessness overall And so having a career certainly doesn't cancel out that loss for me anyway. Maybe there are some people who come to terms with it and find fulfillment in their career. And that's wonderful for them. It doesn't mean that's going to happen for everyone else. And the thing is that I already do have fulfillment in my career and maybe if i didn't yet then i could go okay well now i'm going to find fulfillment in my career and that would be some solace Mm. i don't know Mm. but i already have more fulfillment in my career than i ever dreamt of i am extraordinarily lucky well i will also say i've worked quite hard for it but my career sits in an amazing intersection of things that i love things that are intellectually and creatively stimulating things that i feel are unique and individual to me so that you know it's really it's really helpful to feel that one is making an irreplaceable contribution together with things that i really believe help the world are appreciated by people so it's not just me feeling like I'm helping the world and nobody agreeing with me, I do feel appreciated for it. And also, remarkably, I'm financially rewarded as well. Let's acknowledge that that's important too. And so I have all of those things. It's amazing. It's it's really amazing. But it doesn't seem to do anything to offset the pain that pain is in a completely different place it's it's like it's in a different dimension and I do talk about higher dimensions because my research as a mathematician is in higher dimensional mathematics but I often think that thinking about higher dimensions gives us more nuance and this is one where All of my career success is in one dimension, and this failure is in a completely different dimension and they have nothing to do with each other. Which isn't to say that I'm not grateful for my career success, I don't want to sound ungrateful for it, and I'm not going to wish that I didn't have it. But it doesn't offset the other failure
0: in talking about that sense of, of loss that you're experiencing, my, my experience of, of working with and being with people who have experienced loss, have a loved one who has died, and I talk to people who have that, a little bit discomfort of I don't know what to say, I don't know how to respond to somebody when they've had a loved one die. And so you mentioned that when there's a miscarriage, for example, there are some who really don't know perhaps how to respond mm. uh, in that way too. And so in your case as well, um, I, I maybe, forgive me if I'm projecting a little bit too much too, but in your field, the stereotype might be for mathematicians they're more uh, calculating, uh, even cold. I don't know if that's been something that you've, a, a stereotype that you've had to mm-hmm. fight over the years. So all of those things would seem to make the pain that you're feeling even more acute because there are those who just don't know how to respond if they know what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about what has that loss been like for you and how have you had to deal with it? It sounds like you've found some online communities, which is great, but have you also had to deal with this uh, individually and on your own?
1: Yes, it's it's difficult to know where to, p- to put it, and it's been referred to as disenfranchised grief because it's a loss of something that's a potential in a way rather than mm. an actual person. And yes, some people do think that life begins at conception, and so the bundle of cells, it depends how far along it was, but some it, it may only be a bundle of cells. And for me personally it's a bit of a stretch to think of that as an actual human. Mm -hmm. But then again, there's another sense in which that is the most of a child that I will ever have. Mm. And so it feels like the loss of a child, it just doesn't really look like one to the outside world. And that's one of the reasons it's hard to know how to talk about it and how to grieve it, because
2: mm.
1: when you're grieving a loved one, you miss them, you miss their presence in your life. There is a gap. Yeah. Whereas when you're grieving a miscarriage, a lot of what you're missing is what was about to be. Mm but it's so many things because it's so wrapped up in the function of your actual body. And this is one of the reasons it is different for people who were actually carrying a child who died inside. And it's very difficult to find words to express the horror at least that's how I experienced it, of knowing that you're walking up the street with a dead baby inside you. And that's so horrifying that I'm quite horrified I just said it out loud. And, but I think it needs to be said, Mm. and that that's one of the things that's very traumatizing about it and of course that's something that happens with technology because previously you you would only really know I mean not to get into too much gory detail but you might only really know it was dead by it uh, being removed or removing itself or your body expelling it but now with technology you discover that it is dead and then there's some Time that goes by before either your body expels it or you do something to, to get rid of it. But then with fertility treatment, there's another very difficult form of grief, which is that if it doesn't work, it's not quite a miscarriage, but it's still a loss. And we don't have a word for it. And
0: we don't have a ritual for it either. Because yes. in in w- <clears throat> when someone living has died, there are all kinds of rituals, and there is a visibility, and people may, even though it may be uncomfortable, they know how to respond in some ways. But in this kind of loss, there aren't—maybe there are—but um, there aren't any rituals necessarily too that can help a person get get through that.
1: Yes, and uh, um, Jody Day in her book suggests that we hold a ritual for our losses, mm. even if even if it's social infertility, so it wasn't the loss of an actual living embryo or baby, but that's one of the problems with the taboo, that mm-hmm. many people, most miscarriages happen in the first trimester, and the popular wisdom is that one doesn't announce anything until after the first trimester, because the risk is so high, but as a result, you experience a loss before you've even told anybody. And right. That can be a good thing, because it's, it's so painful telling people but on the other hand it's difficult to express a loss of something that nobody even knew was there in the first place and then with fertility treatment it's it's even worse because you don't get a word it wasn't a miscarriage because you weren't technically pregnant but maybe you had some embryos and they were alive and they felt like your children at the time and I spent some time trying to come up with a word for it. And I like coming up with words. My last book involved coming up with words that have really helped me a lot. And sometimes if, y- if there's a thought that you're trying to have and there's no word for it, it can really help mm. to have a word. And the only word I managed to come up with for it was Literal misconception,
2: Hmm.
1: and the trouble is that the word misconception is now used too much, Mm -hmm. figuratively, and I wanted a word that was was like miscarriage, but it isn't that you've miscarried it. It's like you miss, you failed to take it up in the first place. And I would like there to be that word and because when I think about how many miscarriages I had, I feel like there's a grey area because there were other losses that didn't quite count as miscarriages but but they hurt a lot and are even more invisible.
0: I hope you don't mind me inserting a little bit of my story into Mm. this. My wife and I also um, dealt with fertility issues and went through different IVF treatments. And one of the things that made it hard was, as you're hoping and dreaming about the possibilities, but they are not coming to fruition, but yet society, all you see are, at least this was my experience, all I saw were strollers and... Mm advertisements for the zoo with kids <laughs> and that just made it hard or we would have friends who seemingly were able to conceive and get pregnant and have children with no issue whatsoever but mm-hmm. I don't know that that's the case or not but that's that seems to be the yeah. case um did you t- was that part of your uh, the, the, the struggle and the, the pain that you were feeling too is what was going on outside of you yes absolutely
1: yeah. and it's it's true that because there's a taboo around talking about treatment most people don't talk about it and so most of the people who are having treatment we never know about it unless we're very very close to them because people only tell their closest friends they're doing it all we see is the the result when they do successfully have children but yes the the messaging in the media and everywhere is all about having children which is why it's extraordinary that it turns out that one in five people don't where are where are those people if you read columns in newspapers there are so many about parenthood and having children and it is a big issue but but it's very very far from one in five columns that address the burden of involuntary childlessness and advertising as well and just the language that that people use. And articles about things like, well, reproductive rights often seem to be so much about being able to stop mm. yourself having mm. children. And I read an article recently saying that if men want to help with feminism, then what they need to do is get a vasectomy. As if the, the one thing that was most important for women is to be able to stop having mm. children. And sometimes it, it does seem that the whole rest of the world just automatically keeps having children and then has to stop. But there's a whole lot of others of us who have to try really hard to have them. And some of us are then unable to. And those... It can seem when you're going through it like you're the only one going through it because nobody else is talking about it. And even stories about miscarriage, people get praised when they speak out about miscarriages because it doesn't get talked about enough. But I've noticed, because of what I'm going through, I do notice that the people who talk about it are always people who have children. Mm. And I'm not saying it's easier for them. right? But maybe I'm saying it is much harder to talk about it when you also don't have children, because the overall shame and the compounded layers of grief yeah. make it so difficult.
2: And
0: um, you talked uh, one of the some of the notes that you shared with me that um, what also perhaps made this made the pain more acute was the pandemic uh, and being. Uh, childless I- in the pandemic recognizing that having children in the pandemic was a challenge but can you talk a little bit about that and how did the how did the pandemic uh, perhaps exacerbate the that mm. sense of loss that you felt
1: the pandemic has been difficult for everybody in very different ways i mean apart from a few billionaires who've just added more billions right. to their bank accounts it has been very difficult for everyone and I have looked very lucky during the pandemic because I am financially stable. I was able to work from home. A lot of my work is work that happens at home anyway, like all the writing I do. I didn't leave the house. I wrote several books during lockdown. It looked like I was having a great time. Meanwhile, many people were struggling because they had no work or they had work And they were trying to deal with their children at home, doing virtual school in a small house with not enough rooms for people to have separate rooms. And that was a big struggle. And it was very talked about. And there were many articles in the media about it. And it was almost demanded of us that we have a lot of sympathy for the poor parents struggling with their Mm. children.
2: Mm.
1: And that was very difficult because I had one miscarriage more or less at the exact same time we went into lockdown. And so while everyone else seemed to be struggling with the burden of their children, that burden was the one thing that I wanted Mm. the most and couldn't have. Instead I had just a dead embryo inside me. And that burden maybe is less time consuming in terms of hours of the day, although grief work takes many hours of the day. But it's also a burden that is not offset by any joy. And I think that although having children is a burden and is a lot of work, it is for most people at least a slightly joyful experience, maybe a very joyful experience as well, but the burden of this loss is not, doesn't have any joy. And I felt that I wasn't allowed that pain
2: Mm.
1: because, well, it was partly because I didn't talk about it, so nobody knew I was going through it. And so I was sort of stuck having to be sympathetic towards people who Mm. were dealing with their children And in some ways it was helpful because, I mean the the lockdown because I didn't have to see anybody Mm. and I couldn't deal with seeing people while hiding that pain and not talking about it. But now that I am talking about it, it is very difficult because some of the things that I might do to, to feel alive again I can't do because of the pandemic. And for me, it's not about canceling out the pain. It's about trying to reconnect or remember who I am. Mm. Because one of the things that kept going around my head with all that loss is who am I now? Because the one thing I've known about myself for my whole life, for as long as I can remember since, which must be since I was three or four, the one thing I've always known about myself was that I wanted to be a mother. I've known I wanted to be a mathematician almost as long as that, but I've known I wanted to be a mother longer. And without that, who am I? It's extraordinarily destabilizing for that one thing I've known about myself, just not to be there, or not to be possible. That's the thing that isn't going to be possible. And in a way, that's a more, it's definitely a more abstract burden than the the daily work of feeding your children and washing them and trying to get them to do their homework. But like I often say about abstract things, I don't think that they're further away from reality. I think they're deeper inside it, Hmm. in a way, that, yes, I don't have to spend those hours getting my children to put their shoes on, but I've got this giant hole, void in the middle of me. I mean, there's a literal void in the middle of me, but there's also a giant void in my heart and my soul that where I don't I don't know who I am anymore. And that's what I need to to figure out. And that's it's quite hard in a pandemic because there's not much I can do.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you saying that because in it it just in some ways it makes grief more complex because perhaps somebody can do their best to be empathetic to the loss that you have felt but there's also that loss of self and who you have seen yourself to be or to one day be and when then that is gone too um it just it adds another layer uh, which i don't think as we've noted a lot of this has not been talked about but i think that's another part of it perhaps a sense of identity that mm. also is is lost. And how does one create or recreate that? Again, yes. it sounds like you're in the midst of that.
1: And the thing is that, in a way, I have a very strong sense of myself, mm. but it's not enough. That even with the extremely strong sense of myself through my work, through all the things I've done, that. I know are meaningful to people and I'm very grateful that people have taken the time to tell me how much my work has meant to them and how much it has helped them. That means that I have a very strong sense of myself, but again, it's in this other dimension. And In my head, that has always been just a part and that being a mother felt like it was always going to be the most important thing I did. and. Part of this is because of what other people say, um, that being a parent is the most important part of their life or that their gr- their their, gr- their biggest motivation is their children or mm. that's the biggest part of their life. And in fact, I think that Michelle Obama tweeted something for President Obama's birthday saying something like, well, the the greatest achievement of your life is mm. being a wonderful father to our children. And... And I thought, well, that's very touching. And also it destroyed my heart into many pieces because I thought. Even if you've been president of the United States of America. Still, being a parent is greater than that. And I will never get to do that. And that it feels feels like society is saying that therefore nothing that I ever do Mm -hmm. will ever be as important as that. And therefore I am not as important. I will never be as important as people who've done that.
0: I appreciate you saying that. you have talked, um, or one of the things that you wrote uh, is around the possibility of transformation. Mm. And do you, are you at a place where you can even begin to think about that? Do you feel like that uh, has started or is it something that you're still kind of trying to figure out? Is it possible enough? So how is that going to happen?
1: I do think it's possible. And that's why I'm... That's why I'm talking about it now. This is, I think, part of what the transformation is going to be. And for a while, I could only believe in it intellectually. I couldn't feel Mm. that it was going to happen. And that was why I wrote a short song cycle called Grief Wait, it was called Loss, Grief, Transformation. Mm. It's three songs. And I knew that I wanted to express the pain, but I also wanted there to be something possibly hopeful at the end about the possibility of transformation. And it was interesting because when I tried to write it the first time, it was terrible. Okay, it, m- it might not be great now, but I, I'm quite happy with how it came out now. But the first time I wrote it, it just sounded very superficial and cheesy. Mm. It didn't feel like genuine hope. And that's because I wasn't ready yet. Mm. And I knew that I needed to feel it more genuinely before I could write something that was genuine. And the way I've written it now, it does feel genuinely hopeful to me. And... I I now I think I've started on that and I know I'm sure That for me the process has to involve Helping other people in some way because that's what absolutely drives me the most mm. Some people and I talked about this in my last book and I talk about it quite a lot that some people get their self-esteem from feeling superior to others, feeling that they can do something that other people can't do. And unfortunately, that is quite prevalent among people who feel that they're good at math, that they take pride in the fact that they're good at something that other people find hard. Mm. But unfortunately, that means that in order to maintain their self-esteem, they have to keep other people out. Mm. I'm not like that. I feel good about myself if I'm able to help someone and bring people in and help them in some way. And so I know that my transformation is going to be something to do with helping other people around this topic. And I know that I need to not just move forward despite this, but move forward with this experience driving it so that I'm not just keeping going despite being weighed down by it but that I take that weight and I turn it into something that can help other people because then I'll feel like I've done something worthwhile and the first part of this process is starting to talk about it Mm -hmm. And I don't know where it will take me. And what I've learned from my previous transformation, because I do feel like I did this once before when I switched my career around and became largely freelance and moved back to Chicago, I had no idea where it was going to take me. I just did the next thing. And then I did the next thing.
2: Mm.
1: And then I did the next thing. And here I am. And so that's what I'm going to do now. I don't. It might look like I had a huge plan for all these books I wrote. I didn't. And I don't have a huge plan now. But I'm going to just take the next step and then take the next step. And see where that takes me. And one of the things that I get very great solace and hope from is that many of the most wonderful things that have happened in my life. And I've been very lucky to have had some really extraordinary experiences. And many of them, I had absolutely no idea they were coming. Some of it has happened through years of preparation and hard work, like getting my PhD. That required years of hard work and preparation. But other things such as my job teaching at the School of the Art Institute, I had no idea that was coming. And then an email landed in my inbox saying that they needed someone to teach math. And I was ready for it because of all the other things that I had done, but I had no idea that that specific opportunity was going to arise, Mm -hmm. and then it did. And likewise, when I got my first art commission from Hotel EMC2, I had no idea that was going to happen, and then an email popped into my inbox. And so I... I find it helpful to remember that At any moment Something amazing could be about to happen That I had no idea was going to happen And I was reminded of this By a kind of metaphor This week Where I went for a walk around the lake To the planetarium Where it sticks out Into the lake And I'd never gone really round that Corner, and I went all the way around it and noticed that there's a little beach tucked away behind it. And I felt a bit silly because I just didn't know it was there. <laughs> but it was—I just felt like it was this wonderful metaphor that sometimes you turn around a concrete corner and th- there's a little beach. <laughs> and and I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen, and that you can only get that you have to go for a walk in order to go go around the corner and see the little beach. And I have been sitting at home a lot recently because everything feels too hard. Mm. Leaving the house feels hard. And until I started speaking out about this, I was so afraid of seeing someone and not being able to keep it together emotionally. And one of the things I've always loved about Chicago and living downtown is that Although it's a big city, I do run into people quite a lot. And mm-hmm. I ran into you in a coffee shop at some point recently, although it was before the pandemic, so it was probably not that recent. Well too, I,
0: and I was t- when when I um talked about the first podcast, I found out I was buying your book and I bought it at Sandmeyer's bookstore mm-hmm. and the person said, Oh, you know, she lives in the South Loop <laughs> <laughs> So
1: Right and Sam myers is a wonderful place where all sorts of people go there and on that block i run into other people yeah. and um but since this has happened to me i've been afraid of running into people mm. because i am especially uh, since i haven't seen everyone for so long since the pandemic because i'm just terrified of that awful awful well-meaning question how are you?
2: Mm.
1: Because I can't say I'm okay because I'm not. But you also can't say you're not okay because that's not the social contract <laughs> that we have. The social contract we have is that someone says, how are you? And you say, fine, thank you. Or maybe I'm being very British about it. But that's, no, I think that's true. really the only acceptable answer. Yeah. But now that I have talked about it, I feel less afraid. And... I have tried saying to people when they say how are you I tried saying it's a long story for another time or something like that and and of course because of the pandemic people tend to go oh yeah well covid and and then I I want to say if you only it knew it's <laughs> nothing to do with covid yeah. actually and and it's hard because everyone wants to find a shared experience and the pandemic is in a way a shared experience that we can all talk about but somehow the trauma that I've experienced because I know it's not a shared experience it feels like an erasure if it gets absorbed into the idea of a shared experience and that's it's part of the general invisibility that has been really adding to the pain. And so speaking out and trying to be a little bit visible on behalf of all the people who feel invisible is a start. It's a start. I don't know where it'll go. Yeah.
0: I think one of the important things too uh, of your telling your story is you mentioned earlier about. It seems like when women do talk about miscarriages, the mm-hmm. women who are speaking out do also have their own children, and I think it's—I don't know if this is cultural or societal or what—but people do they they want the happy ending, and so they mm-hmm. can hear the miscarriage, but they also want to hear that they had children. Mm-hmm and i think it's so important for you to begin sharing because th- there's no at the end of this podcast there's not going to be a a part of the story where uh the there's the stereotypical happy ending mm-hmm. but i think it's those stories need to be told as much if not more perhaps
1: yes i think that's a great point and In my trauma, I have become, I admit, a little bit obsessive about scanning to the end of those articles for the dreaded happy ending. Mm. And yes, there is always one. I found one recently that didn't have it in the article, but I got a little bit obsessive, Googled the author and discovered that they did indeed have a happy ending, Mm. in fact. And I just want to stress that I... I don't want to belittle the pain of those women. Right. That this isn't a trauma competition because nobody benefits from those competitions. And I also want to stress that it's not a competition between mothers and non-mothers. Right. But society often pits us in competition against each other. And I think in the end that's just another Technique of the patriarchal status quo at reducing us or pitting us against each other so that we can't be united and change the status quo because all of our stories are important. And in a way, the common experience of women well, it's not motherhood because not all women are mothers, but the common experience is being exploited, being overlooked, being belittled, being undervalued, that's a common experience through whichever routes we take. And so I just want to stress that I'm not trying to make this a competition, but that all of our stories are important and that that we can all support each other through those things, even if we haven't experienced the same things and yes it's difficult to hear something that has no happy ending although i personally all my favorite operas have terribly tragic (laughs) endings and it seems to be very tempting for people to hear my story and insist that i will have a happy ending Mm. and this has been the case all the way through that if I did talk about what we were going through many people felt they just had to say that it, you will you will it will work out for you I know it will and one of the things that Jodie Day writes in her amazing book is that she said someone told her something helpful about this a friend of hers or someone who who is a parent who said that it was horrifying. It's horrifying to talk to people about childlessness if if you're an empathetic person, this person said, because the only way she could try and empathize with it was imagining her own children dying. Hmm. And that was too horrific to contemplate. And so as a result, she couldn't, just couldn't. And that was very eye-opening to me because it helped me understand that if some people with children are unable to listen to these stories, it might not be because of a lack of empathy. It might actually because be because of having too much empathy. And so it's been very heartening to me that some people who do have children have been so so very supportive Mm. and in some cases it's that they do imagine it like losing their own children Mm. and it helps them to understand or they understand that that's how horrific yeah that's somewhere like how horrific it is yeah whereas some women who've been through it and maybe didn't feel quite as much pain as me because some people are a bit more ambivalent about whether they really wanted children and when it didn't happen, they can therefore deal with it a bit better or or that they're so, so far past it that they did find something else to f- fulfill their life and they can look back and say, well, I have this other thing. And that's wonderful for them but everybody's grief is different and it doesn't mean that everyone's grief is going to be like that. And, you know, I think this this may sound like a very horrible thing to say, but some people aren't that sad when, say, their own parents die. Because maybe they had abusive parents. Maybe they're even relieved.
2: Mm.
1: Or maybe they're just not close to them at all. They've become estranged. And then they're, they're a little sad, but it's not soul-destroying. That doesn't mean that the other people are wrong. It doesn't mean that the grief of people who really grieve their parents, it doesn't mean that that's invalid. Everybody's pain is valid. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, clearly you've mentioned this has been, this has been consistent throughout our conversation is your desire to share your story so that it might be helpful or healing for someone else. I don't know if you can break this down into... Uh, a a somewhat pithy, not pithy, but just a a message, a summary message. What is, what are the, what is your hope for somebody who's going through something perhaps similar? What is the message that you want to convey to them that hopefully will help them through their own sense of grief and loss?
1: That you're not alone. You just feel alone because of, th- of the silence mm. that's surrounding this. And there are many situations in life where the loud people are just loud. Unfortunately, this happens a lot in politics, that the loud people may be a very small minority, but they're loud. Mm. And in this case, we are a minority, but we're a large minority and very silent and I hope that this will not only help those people by hearing another person's story but by raising everyone else's awareness because we need everybody else to be aware that this is going on and I hope that in the same way that society is slowly, too slowly, but still moving in the direction of becoming more sensitive to minorities and to the stories of minorities who are underrepresented in, in society. I hope that we can slowly move towards recognizing involuntary childless people as a group who needs some sensitivity mm. as well And also for everyone to remember to just be kind to everybody because we never know what pain they're hiding
0: yeah yeah that's one of the first things I learned in my ministry is that everybody's broken in some way Mm. Uh, and um, so I'm so grateful that you reached out. I'm grateful for your courage. I know it's not been easy, but I hope um, that others will hear this and uh, I'm I'm fairly confident that probably others will reach out to you as a way of saying thank you and to continue to um, share their own story in another way and perhaps that will affect someone else too so that this um, significant silent minority will, will have a voice and that others will be able to know that they're part of that but as you noted that others can be also more kind and sensitive to those who are going through it so um, Eugenia thank you so much for for sharing
1: thank you for having this conversation with me thanks Mm
0: -hmm. and that's our episode thanks again to Eugenia Chang for her vulnerability and willingness to share to learn more about her, please go to her website, eugeniacheng.com or follow her on Twitter at Dr. Eugenia Cheng. To learn more about my ministry, you can go to my website, christiancuhn.com. Thanks again for listening.